from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Political lines are being drawn about national sovereignty, democracy, and U.S. interventionist wars around the globe. This time, Venezuela is at the epicenter of international struggle against U.S. imperialism and propaganda. As long as nobody in the media questions Trump's use of the term dictator for, for Maduro, uh, then Trump has it made. And Congress people are reluctant to criticize Trump or to do anything to impede Trump's efforts. And as Venezuelans brace for the latest U.S. efforts to overthrow their elected government, historian Steve Elner joins us to talk about what is really ailing Venezuela's economy. So if it's up to the United States to decide what country is legitimate and the United States ends up seizing the assets of that country internationally, that that really sets a dangerous precedent. All these stories, voices, and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Now, speaking before supporters in Miami on Monday, Donald Trump escalated his rhetoric against Venezuela, targeting socialism and that country's military for its continued support of the government of President Nicolas Maduro. On Wednesday, head of the U.S. Southern Command, Navy Admiral Craig Fowler, repeated the same appeal and warning to Venezuela's soldiers. Venezuelan military, este mensaje es para los militares venezolanos. You ultimately be held accountable for your actions. Ustedes al final van a ser responsables por sus propias acciones. Do the right thing. Hagan las cosas correctamente. Save your people and your country. Meanwhile, Maduro has closed some border crossings ahead of Saturday, February 23rd, when the Trump administration appears to be building towards some type of confrontation. U.S.-backed opposition leader Juan Guaido claims that thousands of his supporters will bring the U.S. aid into the country on the 23rd, despite the government banning the U.S. aid. Also on Saturday, two separate aid concerts will be held on either side of the Venezuela-Colombia border, and the Venezuela military says it will defend the country's border and rejects threats by Trump and Fowler. It is unheard of that, in flagrant violation of the elemental norms of international law, Trump would attempt to give orders to the Venezuelan military, promoting or encouraging a confrontation among countrymen under the pretext of international aid. While Trump's bombast this week against socialism was directed at Venezuela, it was also clearly directed at rising democratic socialist lawmakers in the United States including Senator Bernie Sanders, who announced his candidacy for the 2020 presidential election on Tuesday morning and raised more than $6 million from 225,000 donors in one day. Since losing the Democratic nomination to Hillary Clinton in 2016, Sanders has built the Social Justice Organization's Our Revolution and the Sanders Institute, which support his ideas for Medicare for All, free tuition at public colleges, a $15 an hour minimum wage, and a Green New Deal. Sanders posted a video Tuesday calling for one million grassroots campaign volunteers. Our campaign is about taking on the powerful special interests that dominate our economic and political life. I'm talking about Wall Street, the health insurance companies, the drug companies, 
the fossil fuel industry, the military-industrial complex, the private prison industry, and the large multinational corporations that exert such an enormous influence over our lives. And on President's Day, hundreds of demonstrators rallied in front of the White House, also to protest Trump's policies on the U.S. southern border as racist and xenophobic, and to condemn his recently declared national emergency as a go-around to the spending authority of Congress. Chantel James has more. Move on, credo action, and win without war were among the organizations who took President's Day as an opportunity to massively organize in protest of the emergency declaration Trump made last week as a way of circumventing congressional approval for his border wall. In only two days, this protest of over 1,000 people was gathered. Here in Lafayette Square, directly across from the White House, speakers at the rally confronted its occupant. They also made clear demands of Congress to pass legislation that will curtail Trump's emergency act. Arlette Morales, 16 years old, gave a stirring speech, after which Ana Maria Chila of the Center for Popular Democracy led the crowd in a supportive chant that defied the policies that keep families like Arlette's living in fear. I'm here with CASA, and I've been a member with CASA for about three years. My name is Alette Morales, and I'm 16 years old. My parents brought me into the United States from Mexico with nothing in their pockets but hope. I've been living in the United States my whole life. I know the language, I know the culture, the United States is my home. I have dreams and I have passions, but unfortunately, on September 5th of 2017, DACA was shut down just two weeks before I would turn 15, and I would be able to qualify. I know, I know I'm not the only one who has to go through this fear of being deported. The feeling of being denied, of not being eligible for opportunities, every day with the fear of what if. We are here to work, we are here for a better life, to succeed, to become somebody, to make a difference. And I know, parents, you have sacrificed it all for your children, for a better future for them, for them to have the opportunities and to have the things that you never had. They all work hard, they put a roof over our head, and they always provide a meal for us. We all work hard to have a better life. This is the reality for all of the immigrant families. The wall is not intended to stop drugs or bad hombres. The wall is intended to stop, to stop hardworking families like mine that come to this country for a better and for a safer life. Emergency is not at the border. It is in York, PA, and all of the communities around the country where students like me wonder, what if mom and dad won't come home today? The emergency is here in D.C. where our democracy is under attack. In high school, government class, we learned about three branches of government. So even if I'm not born here and I am only 16 years old, it is pretty clear to me that the president is not respecting the basic principles of our country and of our democracy was founded on. So I am here to urge our elected leaders in Congress to make sure we maintain the balance, the power set by our Constitution, and that speaks against President Trump's gross outreach, just like we are doing here today. Thank you. Concurrent protests were held in New York and Los Angeles. From the White House, this is Chantal James. 
a new round of national demonstrations. These saying hands off Venezuela will be held Saturday, February 23rd around the United States and around the world. In the D.C. area, the rally will be Saturday, 4 p.m. at 33rd and North Charles Street in Baltimore. Hands-off Venezuela rallies are planned for in front of the White House on March 16th and March 30th. More information is at nowaronvenezuela.org. More on Venezuela after headlines, but there was other international news outside this hemisphere. And on the grounds, geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn is here to help us unpack it. Gerald, a lot happening involving Saudi Arabia. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the congressional report that suggests that uh, leading members of the military industrial complex here in the United States have been seeking to profit by overturning regulations and rules concerning nuclear proliferation by sending nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia, which has to be viewed in the context of this warmongering against Iran, and also the hypocrisy and double standards since apparently the United States has been threatening war against Iran because of its efforts to develop civilian nuclear technology. And I might also add that this gathering alliance between Saudi Arabia, the United States, and Israel is quite dangerous, not only for the obvious reasons, because it may portend war, but MSNBC is now reporting that disgraced U.S. Vice President Spiro Agnew, who you might recall was forced out of office because of various crimes in the 1970s, was seeking to broker an anti-Jewish, anti-Zionist alliance with Saudi Arabia after he was forced out of office, saying that it was the Jewish-American community that was responsible for his disgrace. And I have to believe that those sorts of elements are still in existence in Saudi Arabia, which casts even more light upon this congressional report on trying to send nuclear technology to Riyadh. Speaking of Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, MBS has been traveling uh, lots of news about where Saudi Arabia will be doing business this week. Well, he, he traveled to Pakistan, uh, another notorious nuclear proliferator, and as well, along with Saudi Arabia, a sponsor of a certain kind of religious zealotry that bleeds into what could easily be called terrorism. He also visited New Delhi, India, And as you know, tensions have been ratcheted up recently between Pakistan and India. And I have to say, I was a bit taken aback by the fact that Prime Minister Modi embraced uh, MBS when he arrived in New Delhi. And he also plans to go to Indonesia, which is the most populous, predominantly Islamic nation on planet Earth, and also has a kind of Salafist or religious zealotry trend And I don't think that trend will be arrested once Mr. MBS arrives there. There were a few just kind of footnotes that I saw related to Saudi Arabia this week. Joe Crowley, who was defeated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is heading to K Street as a lobbyist. And while he won't be allowed to lobby Congress officially for 11 months, he can start lobbying the... Uh, administration immediately 
and he's heading to heading to Squire Patton Boggs, and one of their clients is the Saudi monarchy. <laughs> the um, other clients include Amazon, Royal Dutch Shell, and United Health. And the other thing I saw was that even though the House has passed this measure to cut off U.S. aid to the Saudi-led attack on Yemen, and the Senate is expected to vote on it soon, that Raytheon uh, still signed a deal to sell the UAE, United Arab Emirates, $1.6 billion in arms. So that is definitely related to what the Saudi Saudis are doing in Yemen. Not only Yemen, but as I think we've reported on these airwaves, the Saudis have been quite active in recruiting child soldiers in Darfur, Sudan. These child soldiers obviously have limited opportunities in any case, and they're being used as cannon fodder for this genocidal war that's unfolding as we speak. Well, on the subject of bombs and missiles, Last but certainly not least this week is the statement made by Russian President Vladimir Putin on responding to the potential threat of more American missiles on European soil. This recent speech that President Putin gave in Moscow really needs to be studied. That is to say that he's suggesting that in light of the United States breaking out or attempting to break out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with Russia, with Moscow, and if the United States then follows up by stationing, stationing missiles in Europe that will threaten Russia, Mr. Putin has pledged to not only go after where those missiles are stationed, but go after the U.S. soil as well, and has also talked about stationing uh, nuclear submarines closer to the U.S. shoreline, talked about this hypersonic missile which he says uh, cannot be countered uh, as of now by the United States. In other words, we obviously need a new approach to Washington-Moscow relations. Right. And the news reports that I did read about that in the corporate media really almost reports his comments in a vacuum without any context, without any historical background on how the U.S. has placed missiles or these supposed missile shields or whatever all along the border of Russia. And so the, the, his comments aren't being reported in the context of what's already like on the ground. And of course, this is taking place in the context of the expansion of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, closer to the border with Russia which, according to all credible and reliable accounts, the United States pledged in the early 1990s not to do, which obviously helps to increase the suspicion that Moscow has of U.S. intentions. Well, you know, between what's happening in this hemisphere that we're talking about on this show and all of these tensions with another nuclear power, we're living in a very tenuous and kind of dangerous time. not really being led by people with level heads and just like sane intentions. So we'll definitely keep watching, you know, as much as we can. Right. All right. Uh, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald, for joining me. Thank you. This is not a party. A party just for you. We just want to live. Live on and a few.
Iraq. Yeah. Look at us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. هذا العراق بدايتك اخرتك جوازك اخرتك وين جوازك؟ بس دير بالك لك لا تغلط This is Iraq Look at us blowing up Look how I'm throwing up Prime Minister on the up Yeah, this is Iraq Corrupt in the area Farsi hysteria Saying we gon' take care of ya Nah nah I'ma get shot for this Nah nah You might get blocked from this Nah nah I'ma go train a kid Nah nah Wash off the innocence Nah nah Sense for blood like yeah Yeah I'm so bored like yeah Yeah Let's go blow like yeah Braka Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. هذا العراق. بدايتك اخرتك. جوازك اخرتك. بس دير بالك لك لا تغلط. Look how they freaking out. Take your clothes off. Rape. Taking photo. Grape. I'm so petty. They don't get it. They're immune. This is telly. That's the news. Media blackout. Black. Then it's lights out. Yeah. Keep sniffing the tar. We'll lift the door, my yahmar. Barrels on barrels on barrels. barrels. Food for barrels and barrels. Ellie Burton, the demolished. Delivered the mission accomplished. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. For this segment, I'm joined by Steve Elner, Professor Emeritus of Economic History at the Universidad de Oriente in Venezuela. He is the Associate Managing Editor of Latin American Perspectives Journal, author of numerous books and journal and magazine articles on Venezuela history and politics. He frequently lectures on Venezuela and Latin American political developments in the U.S. and elsewhere. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Elner. Thanks for the invitation, Esther. Well, as we go to broadcast on Friday, February 22nd, this is a day before the 23rd when the self-proclaimed interim president, uh, leader of the opposition in Venezuela, Juan Guaido, has given this date as a deadline for the country to accept humanitarian aid from the United States. And there's also going to be competing concerts on either side of the border that Venezuela shares with Colombia. And people don't know exactly what to expect to happen, but they're looking at this scenario as a possible flashpoint and that could be dangerous. What's your take on what's happening in Venezuela right now? I don't know either what's going to happen, but I'll say that, unfortunately, the whole campaign to 
ship to Venezuela, this so-called humanitarian aid, has been politicized. It's obviously not about the aid itself. It's about the political standoff between President Maduro and Juan Guaido, backed in a lot of different ways by the Trump administration. That has been criticized. The uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has criticized, his office has criticized this, uh, saying that humanitarian aid should not be politicized. If anything, it should be funneled through the United Nations and through the Red Cross. And the Red Cross takes the same position, criticizing the politicizing of the humanitarian aid. Now, you know, that humanitarian aid consists of $20 million. Uh, it might get up to $50 million. But it's still very insignificant in comparison to, for instance, the reserves that Venezuela has in London and England between $1 and $2 billion, which the Trump administration has pressured the British government uh, not to release those reserves. Venezuela has been trying to access them to get out uh, to help alleviate the very pressing economic situation in Venezuela. And until now, uh, Britain has refused and has really complied with the position of the Trump administration, and that is that all assets of the Venezuelan government internationally should be basically confiscated, should not be given, that the Venezuelan government should not be able to gain control of its own assets. So when you compare the $1 to $2 billion that could be used uh, to allevi alleviate the situation in Venezuela with the 20 to $50 million, I mean, that's just a drop in the bucket. I would say, Esther, that it's quite obvious what's at stake. It's really all about Venezuela's oil. And that's what the Trump administration, that's what Trump has, has basically said. In fact, the, the book that was just published a couple of days ago by Andrew McCabe, the ex-director of the FBI, he states in his book that when he was the acting director of the FBI, that one of his people spoke to Trump and Trump stated, why are we wasting our time in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Iraq? We should be going after Venezuela because Venezuela has the oil. Uh, and that's, he put it that bluntly. So that it seems to me that uh, that's really what's at stake. Uh, the humanitarian aid is really just a cover. So I wanted to go back to the whole banking situation and the gold. Venezuela has gold that produces gold. Gold is mined in that country. It has gold reserves in London. And in terms of precedent, Libya's gold was seized. Other countries have had their assets frozen. But is there any precedent for this level of seizure of a country's assets? Not, not at all. I, I think this is a unique situation. It's setting a very troublesome precedent because it's, it really hasn't happened. The gold that Libya had just kind of like disappeared. Nobody really knows what happened to it. This was the gold that Libya had in European institutions. That was their reserve. You know, all countries have reserves, gold, silver, and dollars, mostly. And these were seized, but these were seized after, or they just really disappeared in the case of Libya. But this was after Gaddafi was overthrown and killed. In the case of Venezuela, this is an acting government. 
and it's very precarious. It's very it's a very delicate situation because you know in a sense uh, the Trump administration is toying with the rights of property. If the U.S. government can decide, for instance, what country is legitimate and what country isn't legitimate, and it's a unilateral kind of thing, even though it can always count on its allies in Europe and count on right-wing governments, like in the case of much of Latin America, but if the United States government can take that initiative, it means that nobody is safe with their money. The, you know, the United States is deciding that Venezuela is, for instance, not legitimate. The government is, of Maduro is not legitimate because it isn't democratic. But, you know, there are a lot of countries in the world that are anything but democratic, beginning in the hemisphere with Honduras, for instance, or uh, Saudi Arabia in the case of the Middle East, and so many other countries. So if it's up to the United States to decide what country is legitimate, and the United States ends up seizing the assets of that country internationally, that, that really sets a dangerous precedent. Just as a, a lay person looking at this situation, why wouldn't we just consider this to be a rogue act that is against international law? What body, where is the United Nations? Is there any world court that can basically say, hands off Venezuela, hands off their property, you, you don't have a right to seize their assets in terms of economics and law? Well, it, it is a clear violation of international law. Uh, the, the sanctions themselves are a violation. Uh, unilateral sanctions, even though there are different countries that are participating, but they're participating really on an individual basis. In other words, you don't have the United Nations itself as was the case with, for instance, apartheid in South Africa. This was you know, a decision that was made by the UN. But in the case of Venezuela, uh, the United Nations is not going along with these sanctions, is not approving of these sanctions. So it is a violation of international law. There's no question about that. But so is the threat of the use of force, uh, which Trump has stated time and again that the military option is on the table. As, as a matter of fact, he started this week in a clip that will play. He started out this week making those kinds of threats from Miami. And then during the week, it was followed by comments from a U.S. naval commander. And <laughs> this is extremely shocking, really, to see, you know, somebody from the U.S. military threatening, not only threatening military action in essence, but also threatening Venezuela's military, saying that basically if you don't stand down, you know, you have to suffer the consequences or whatever. Really bizarre and dangerous. Yeah, and you know, you, you ask if these things are without precedent, and this is a, another situation which is really without precedent, that the United States government and the individual that you mentioned is the head of the Southern Command, which is in these, you know, uh, Caribbean waters uh, around South America, Central America and South America. This is without precedent that the United States government has explicitly, overtly uh, encouraged a military coup. Uh, and this really isn't recent. I mean, this goes back a, a month or two when President Trump, next to the recently elected president of Colombia, uh, Ivan Duque, uh, stated that a military coup in Venezuela would succeed. 
that's in effect saying that the United States would support a military coup. Uh, and now the United States is even going further. The Trump administration is saying that any officer who is on the list of those people who are sanctioned, beginning with Obama, unfortunately, but now with, with Trump, that list has, has increased. Uh, 70 or so Venezuelans are being sanctioned without the right of defense, without the right of replica. Uh, they're on this list, which means that they'll get their property confiscated in the United States and they're denied a visa. So the Trump administration has stated that any of the officers who are on this list will be taken off the list if they recognize Juan Guaido. Uh, so that, I mean, that's like encouraging the military officers saying, you know, we recognize you as violating law because supposedly, theoretically, the list is of those people who have uh, engaged in uh, drug trafficking or money laundering or corruption, that kind of thing. So these people are being accused of committing, you know, a crime. And now the government is saying, if you support Juan Guaido, we will forget about that accusation against you. So th this situation, you use the word bizarre, and uh, I agree that it's, uh, it's startling what the Trump administration is doing in order to rally support behind uh, Guaido and encourage the overthrow of the Maduro government. You know, what's really happening is that these are the same tactics that used to be covert. That's what it is. <laughs> I realized that when you, t when, you know, people who are former CIA whistleblowers, people who have been in the so-called intelligence community, during and become whistleblowers, these are kinds of things that they talk about being done covertly. And we're just in an age now of overt, overt imperialism. And it's, it's just not under wraps anymore. No more, no more stacks of money on pallets, you know, just, you know, uh, loaded on the airplane. No, none of that anymore. It's just overt bribery and international rogue action. I agree with you. It's, Firstly, over it when before it was, uh, you know, done behind the scenes. And secondly, there's not only a, an explicit statement of intention, but also an activism on the part of the leading members of the Trump administration. They have now for, you know, over a year uh, been traveling throughout Latin America, calling on the Latin American countries to participate in the campaign to isolate Venezuela. Haley did it at the inauguration of President Duque in Colombia. She said that uh, Colombia will play a special role in the campaign against Venezuela. And then the Secretary of Defense uh, kicked off his uh, tour of uh, South, South America in Brazil, saying the same thing to the Brazilian government of the, the then President uh, Temer. So that, uh, and uh, Pence has also traveled around uh, trying to, you know, gain support for the isolation of Venezuela. So it's not only overt, it's not only explicit, there's a real activism uh, on the part of leading members of the Trump administration. I'm conscious as we speak about these current events that this isn't really anything new. I mean, earlier this week I was playing the speech given by Hugo Chavez at the UN, United Nations in, I think, 2006. And, and uh, he talked about how 
He lamented the weakness of the UN. He basically talked about how, in the face of even at that time, Venezuela being threatened by the U.S., being being in the in the crosshairs of the U.S., that the UN as an international body was not able to do anything. It it reminds me of that, and also reminds me of some of the other history of the the uh, actions against Chavez, which you know we'll we'll get to a little later. But you mentioned the. You, in terms of the United Nations, uh, there's been a lot of unreported news as I've looked at corporate media here. And the action that you mentioned in terms of the United Nations really not being on board, not coming on board with these hostile acts against Venezuela, that was never really reported in the corporate media. And and also there was a recent meeting of, I think, dozens of countries coming together with a resolution of solidarity with Venezuela. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, there are 60-odd countries that are supporting the Trump administration's position of Venezuela and have recognized the Guaido government. But the number of countries that recognize Maduro is much greater. Uh, you know, the rest of the world do, does not recognize uh, Guaido. Uh, they so we're maintain, talking about, what, hundreds of other countries? Or... Over 100 other countries. So, uh, you know, like I said before, the United States can always count on the support of its European NATO allies for obvious reasons. I mean, NATO, the Western European nations are dependent on the United States militarily and otherwise. Uh, Italy is one country that has refused, by the way, to support the U.S. position. But uh, the, the other countries have fallen in line. And it's kind of amazing because some of those countries like Spain and Portugal were playing a very uh, important role in favor of a negotiated solution. I think it shows the kind of pressure that the United States can place on, on countries. The president of Spain stated that, you know, he wasn't going to take sides in this dispute between uh, the opposition and Maduro because Spain wants to play a positive role in promoting dialogue. And Portugal had a similar kind of position. So I think that the United States, you know, always exerts pressure, is able to exert pressure uh, on Europe, and is always going to be able to rely on the support of conservative right-wing governments. And unfortunately, the situation in Latin America is, is just that. Uh, countries that previously were progressive governments, such as Brazil and Argentina and uh, other countries, or, uh, Ecuador is another example, are now conservative countries. Uh, and in the case of Brazil, you know, some people would characterize the Brazilian government as being neo-fascist. So the United States can always count on, on that kind of support. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that a majority of the countries in the world, the OPEC countries and the non-aligned countries, the countries in Africa, as a matter of fact, they're not supporting the U.S. position. Russia, Turkey, China, and several Latin American countries like Mexico, you know, uh, the government of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's just elected president, is taking the same position in favor of dialogue and non-recognition of Guaido and recognition of Maduro. So that situation is more complex than the U.S. media uh, makes it seem. Well, on that note, I'm going to take a brief break. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Steve Elner, Professor Emeritus of Economics History, and we're talking about the situation in Venezuela right now. And Steve, I want to go next to the whole issue of sanctions. The line from the Trump administration has been to stigmatize the failures of the Venezuelan economy uh, because of socialism. And, you know, I've been reading a lot and I realized that, you know, really most of Venezuela's economy is held privately by um, the traditional kind of oligarchs and, you know, capitalist class in the country. So what have sanctions done and what are sanctions doing in Venezuela right now? Well, you're absolutely right, Esther. Uh, when President Trump states that Venezuela is an example of how socialism and communism do not work. He's not taking into consideration that Venezuela is not socialist. It's not socialist at all. The government uh, is committed to socialism. That's a a goal, a long-term goal. Uh, It it was announced by by Chavez back in 2005. Uh, But like you say, 70 to 80 percent of the economy is private privately owned. Some people would say that the problems that Venezuela faces uh, are precisely uh, on account of the fact that it's not socialist, (laughs) that if the government would play a stronger role, it would be able to resolve some of these problems. But that's another issue. Well, I know, for example, that in terms of the shortages, some people have pointed out that the very people who control the flow of needed food supplies, medicines, are the people who are perhaps are hoarding these things uh, that aren't allowing the 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 economy to flow naturally and that are, you know, creating doing their own part to foment this uh, crisis. Right. You know, Esther, it's, it's complicated. I, what I say is that uh, there are three factors that explain, it's not three theories, it's three different factors, and they're all perhaps impo- important, perhaps even equally important. One, one is the price of oil, which, uh, you know, declined drastically after having increased. And that's always a problem because when prices increase, uh, governments begin to have commitments and create expectations. So the price of oil under Chavez skyrocketed, reached over $100 a barrel for Venezuelan oil, and then nosedived 
uh, and reached a little over $30 a barrel under Maduro. So that has to have a big effect on a country that is so dependent on oil and has been since the 1920s. The opposition denies that. The opposition says, you know, it's all about the incompetence of the government, and Trump says it's all about socialism. But the fact of the matter is that oil is is a major factor. The the decline in the price of oil is a major factor. The second factor is not only the sanctions, but this economic war against Venezuela that goes way back in time. It's not just Trump's sanctions. You know, when the United States government, for instance, uh, under Bush in 2007, decided not to supply Venezuelan, the Venezuelan uh, Air Force with spare parts for its F-16 planes. These were very, very expensive planes that Venezuela acquired in the early 1980s. And basically it meant that these planes would, could no longer be used. And Venezuela was forced to turn to the Russian. They purchased 24 planes from Russia, but that was expensive. So, I mean, just that example alone indicates what a burden this has been economically, the um, aggression on the part of the hostility on the part of the United States. Under Obama, Obama issued a decree in 2015 that declared Venezuela a threat to U.S. national security and created this list of sanctions that I mentioned before. A lot of people said, well, that's, you know, really is not significant. It's just rhetoric because obviously Venezuela is not a threat to U.S. national security. But the fact of the matter is that after that was announced, there was an avalanche of uh, uh, U.S. companies that pulled out of Venezuela, Ford, Kimberly-Clark, after that, General Motors, Kellogg's. One company after another pulled out of Venezuela. This had a big effect on the Venezuelan economy. So the sanctions and the hostility uh, has all contributed to the economic problems. And a third factor, which um, uh, has to be brought into the picture, uh, is that I believe that Maduro has made some errors. Uh, He himself recognizes that, you know, he's made errors. And we can all, you know, uh, speculate about that. I have my explanations with regard to those errors. But those are basically three factors. And they all, you know, are significant. And so when the justification for the sanctions is that the government is incompetent, that the government is, you know, responsible for the economic problems, it doesn't take into account that the sanctions themselves are causing the economic problems. The price of oil also contributes to the economic problems. And furthermore, just because a nation makes some errors with regard to economic policy, whatever they may be, all nations do that. And so that can't be a justification for sanctions or for the threat of, uh, of uh, military intervention. I've been really struck by the role of corporate media. I've been, I, I'm not, struck is not even really the right word. I've been shocked and disgusted by the amount of non-factual information incomplete information, ahistorical information that I see in the media about Venezuela and and also that extends to social media. So in terms of, um, you know, looking at what you read, I know I saw a piece that you completed recently talking about what the media is getting wrong about Venezuela. What what do you think is the, the biggest error or lie or, you know, wrong meme out there about Venezuela? Yeah, that's a good question, because uh, I, I think the article that you're referring to, I, I uh, mentioned that the mainstream media 
could use uh, good fact checkers uh, in the reporting on Venezuela because they make so many, so many statements that are either false or misleading or cherry picking or, you know, distortion of reality. You usually do not outright lies usually they're just misleading statements so it's a good question what what is the most important of all the misleading uh, deceptive statements what's the most important one and i think the most important misleading statement is that the mainstream media uses the term that president trump uses with regard to president maduro trump calls maduro a dictator the media calls him an autocrat without putting the word in quotation marks and that is highly deceptive, in my opinion. You know, you mentioned that here in the States, there are, you know, so many problems with regard to the state of democracy. Uh, there are a lot of uh, shortcomings and a lot of violation of democratic norms. In the case of Venezuela, th there are also shortcomings. But I think the bottom line is secret elections in which the votes get counted correctly. I think that that... It, it, that is really the, the defining criterion of democracy. And uh, with regard to that, the, you know, the opposition in Venezuela, even though they criticize practically everything that Maduro and Chavez before him uh, says and does, nevertheless, they usually don't use the word fraud, electoral fraud. And when they do, they're referring to the fact that you don't have an, uh, uh, a level playing field. Uh, in Spanish, it's called ventajismo. And they say, you know, the government and the state channel, there's one, one main state channel, and they have most pro-government information. So they refer to that. But with regard to the votes, I mean, the votes are secret, and nobody really denies that. And the votes get counted. As a matter of fact, Jimmy Carter stated that the Venezuelan electoral system is the best of the 90-some-odd elections that his Carter Center has observed over the years. And he says that because the electoral system is based on a duality of electronic voting and paper, the paper ballot. And then there's an auditing process in which the two are compared. If there's any discrepancy, well, okay, but that never happens. Uh, so it's, it's really, uh, in a sense, a foolproof system or virtually a foolproof system because if the electronic system is rigged, well, you've got the paper ballot and the opposition sits in on the vote, count, vote counting. As a matter of fact, in the last presidential elections, uh, the candidates, uh, their observers in all the election, election centers um, signed the documents indicating that uh, there wasn't any problem. So that's the bottom line. And when the media calls Maduro an autocrat, I think that does great harm because certainly there are economic problems in Venezuela. You can dispute whether the media is exaggerating or not. But, I mean, I can say because I've you know, lived in Venezuela for a long time, and I can say that the situation is very, very difficult. But that's not an excuse to, to invade a country. That's not an excuse to impose sanctions on a country. But when you state that the government is a dictatorship, then there's more receptivity to, you know, those measures against that country. Uh, so that as long as nobody in the media questions uh, Trump's use of the term dictator for, for Maduro, uh, then Trump has it made. Uh, and Congress people are reluctant to criticize Trump or to do anything to impede Trump's efforts. 
Uh, so th- I think that is really the crucial issue. Mm-hmm. And I repeat, there are, there are problems in Venezuela with regard to, uh, you know, uh, democratic norms, uh, but of the same magnitude that there are in the United States. After all, here in the States, you have between five and seven uh, million ex-felons who are free people. They've served their time, and they, they don't have the right to vote. Practically, they don't have the right to vote. Uh, in addition to gerrymandering and accusations of fraud and, uh, fraud and voter suppression, and our electoral college system, which people throughout the world do not understand, that the candidate that gets less vote than another candidate ends up getting elected president, which was the case with Bush and, and Trump. So uh, that really is an issue that the media should investigate, should report on, uh, and should open up some kind of debate over. And the media right. isn't doing Right, right. Well, I know I'm rapidly running out of time and I have so many more questions for you, but why don't we just end with your thoughts on pluses and minuses about the Bolivarian Revolution. A lot of people don't understand what it is. They don't know exactly what it is. And, you know, you say the word revolution, you say the word dictator, like you just explained. And a lot of people, it's just kind of foreign words. So just give people a sense of what the Bolivarian Project has been about and how it's impacted people's lives there. Okay. Yeah, I think that the area that first comes to mind is that there was an incorporation of the marginalized sectors of the population. Those are the people who don't have any kind of representation. Uh, they belong to the informal economy uh, or they, uh, you know, here in the States, we use the term gig economy. They're people who don't have any job security at all. Uh, and that constitutes more than 50% of the population throughout Latin America, including Venezuela. Uh, and Chavez, you know, did a really good job in terms of, you know, he said explicitly, he said, you know, I'm the president of Venezuela. I, uh, uh, my job is to um, improve the lot of all the people, the middle class, the business sector. But my priority is the, the poor sectors of the population because they need me the most. And Chavez established uh, social programs uh, which incorporated those marginalized sectors of the population. Community councils or communal councils in which people in the, the, the barrios, the poor communities, um, solicit funding for public works projects in their community. Uh, and that, that has given them a sense of empowerment because they solicit the funding, they oversee the work. Sometimes the funding goes directly to them, to the communal council that carries out the public works project. So that, I think, is one of the pluses. I mean, I can mention some others, um, but I think that's one of the pluses. Uh, it, it, it's, a type of, it's a new type of democracy in Venezuela. The constitution that Chavez passed in 1999 uh, is called participatory democracy, um, participation of the people. But I think you asked for, about the minuses, and I would say at the same time that you have a plus in terms of participation at the local level, there's a minus there because you don't have, uh, in addition to elections, you don't have mechanisms in which people have an input. You know, there's an informal kind of system in which Maduro travels throughout the country. Chavez did also. Uh, and the different, you know, Chavez 
politicians travel and they speak to the people, but they don't, they haven't been too successful in establishing mechanisms of rank and file input in decision making at the upper levels. But in terms of the economics, I mean, my understanding is that when <clears throat> what what Chavez did in terms of, I don't know, is the right term to say that he nationalized the oil, the oil there and made it a state company and then used that revenue to help all the people? Yes, uh, it's a little a little more complicated than that because the oil industry was nationalized. Some felt it, it had a lot of shortcomings, but it was at least theoretically nationalized in, in 1976. But in the 1990s, in the period of neoliberalism, it was, because, it was being privatized, just like in Mexico. The same thing happened in Mexico, uh, and López Obrador now is trying to reverse that. In Venezuela, it, it was getting privatized, and you had these mixed companies in which the state oil company had a minority share of 40%, in a lot of cases, a lot less. No, actually 30%. And in a lot of other cases, a lot less. So Chavez, in October of 2001, issued uh, a law that stated, the the organic uh, hydrocarbon law stated that all the primary oil operations, all these mixed companies, the state had to have over 50% ownership. And shortly after that, there was a coup against uh, Chavez. He was overthrown for two days in April of 2002. So that was a very controversial measure, but it asserted state control over the oil industry, and he later on increased that to 60%, so that um, these mixed companies are at least 60% state-owned. Okay. And then when the price of oil was high, that that revenue that was state-owned was funneled into the social programs to... Um, you know, help lift up the poorest Venezuelans. Right. Uh, yeah. Very much so. That, yeah. that, that was a priority program. The uh, very ambitious programs, they're, they're called missions. And just to give one example, you know, I'm a university professor in Venezuela, and every year, every semester, there's a problem with students who don't get into the universities. People more or less consider that that is a right uh, univers- uh, high school graduate has the right to study at the university level, um, but it doesn't happen in a lot of cases, you know, as a result of in- influence or paying money under the table or students who get high uh, scores on their exams. But then, you know, the poor students tend to get left out. Uh, and that's always been a source of problem. Well, Chavez created a, a mission for high school education. It was called the Rebus Mission and the Sucre mission, which is for university education, and it's meant that hundreds of thousands of students, and I taught in the program more or less as a volunteer, and hundreds of thousands of students from the barrios have been able to study at the university level and graduate. And also, um, and the, the last thing I, I know uh, about a housing program, and I keep getting different numbers in terms of the numbers of housing, public housing units built. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that, that was a program that Chavez initiated in 2011, I believe. And uh, it's you know mainly in the barrios, mainly for the poor people. There have been over 2 million houses, houses that have been constructed. 2 million? And, uh, 2 million. 2 million of a population of 30, 30 million. 
I've been speaking with Steve Elner, Professor Emeritus of Economic History at the Universidad de Oriente in Venezuela. He's the Associate Managing Editor of Latin American Perspectives Journal, author of numerous books and journal and magazine articles on Venezuela, history and politics, and he frequently lectures on Venezuela and Latin American political developments in the U.S. and elsewhere. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on the program. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Steve Elner, and also thank our contributor, Chantel James. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And you can subscribe to On The Ground on Patreon. The music we play this hour included This Is A Rock by INZ and Free by Stevie Wonder. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum, and until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.